Dear fellow redeemed, as we stand at the beginning of the season of Lent, there are a few things quite like Lent that, that give us a chance to see sin as God sees it, to understand the nature of things in this world, to understand the nature of evil and the true depth of depravity. But the interesting thing about Lent, especially as compared to any other um, human attempts to understand sin, evil, grace, the bad things of this world, every other human attempt says the problem's out there. The problem's with those guys. If the ones across the aisle from me, if they just thought the way that I did, then life would be grand, life would be wonderful, life would be great. There'd be nothing to worry about, but they are the ones with the agenda. They are the ones with the inborn evil. They are the ones with the distorted view of life. The problem is over there. And the interesting thing about Lent, as with all of our um, worship services that begin with the confession of sin, which is nearly all of them, and certainly all of them that have Holy Communion, which is also nearly all of them, all of our services that begin with a confession they all start the same way. I confess that I have sinned against you. That even though the world around us may have some reckoning of evil, some understanding of evil, it is always the external circumstances, some, something or someone outside of me. I woke up on the wrong side of the bed. I had a headache. It was a bad day. But when we come into the presence of God, we have nothing to offer but I confess that I was conceived and born in sin. I confess that I have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, and we look at our extended confession as we have today, and as we occasionally use during the season of Lent, that that understanding of sin is more thoroughgoing than perhaps we consider, contemplate, or even realize. And so it's, it's kind of interesting. We're going to begin looking at Psalm 51, just a little bit from Psalm 51. And it's kind of interesting when we see this question of evil and where, it, where does evil reside, where does it come from, that we are coming from a fundamentally different place where the Christian knows from Scripture that evil comes from within the heart, that evil just isn't because of the circumstances that we grew up in, although that may exacerbate it, but the evil comes from within. And if you are familiar with Psalm 51, and then you are probably familiar with this guy, King David. Um, King David, and <laughs> I say if you know one thing about King David, it's probably David and Goliath. If you know two things, um, it's probably David and Bathsheba. Psalm 51 was written after that incident of David and Bathsheba. And if you were to look at that portion of Scripture, David is shirking his responsibilities as king and as general, and he eventually writes Psalm 51 after the fact. When, David, when Nathan the prophet has confronted him, when Nathan the prophet has, by God's grace, used the tool of God's word to bring him to repentance, then David sits down to pen Psalm 51, and probably the most noteworthy, <laughs> noteworthy verse in the whole thing against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. 
And we understand that. I mean, we confess, Lord, I have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. But David, how can you write that? How can you write um, after, let's see, it was the Bathsheba was purifying herself ritually so that she could go back to church after her cycle had completed. Um, David is shirking his responsibilities. He left his own um, sleeping quarters. He left behind the army that he should have been with. He betrayed one of his closest men, a convert to, Israel, to Judaism, an a believer from outside of the land of Israel, and he went through all the instruction and all the circumcision that it took in order to become a member of the nation of Israel, and David betrayed him, stabbed him in the back with the sword of the enemy. And David writes, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Time out, David. What about Bathsheba and Uriah? What about your general what about the rest of the army? What about the rest of the nation? What about the name of God himself who said that, that David was a king after his own heart? What about the name of God and this nation? What about the fact, the promise, that one like David who would be a better king than David would reign on David's throne forever? Because if we understand sin and judge sin from a purely or merely human perspective, we immediately, almost by nature, like it's born into us, we immediately click over into a system of checks and balances. What is the formula? What is the algorithm for, you know, how many people does this sin affect? Well, if it, if it affects many people or if it affects somebody who is a, a helpless victim, if it affects a child, then this sin is great and grievous. But, hey, maybe there's such a thing as a victimless crime. And if it's just in the confines of your own home, and it's just in the confines of your own mind, and if it's just not affecting anyone else, then we think, that's not so bad. And maybe it's God's fault. Maybe it's God's fault that he has such a high standard. Besides, what kind of a God is that? Who would demand righteousness? Surely he, he can't expect that from me because I can't live up to it. Surely there's some sense of fairness. There's got to be some sense of fairness with God. I'm just doing the best that I can, and okay, um, it's just a little slip up here or there just this one time, but really... I just slept it off. Not a big deal. And when you come forward, or you see the cross on somebody else's forehead, or you join in with the confession or the song, it's like God puts all of that on pause and says, Dear Christian, do you see? <laughs> Dear Christian, do you see? Do you see what, what sin actually is? That when David writes, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, that in a worldly sense, he probably could have justified himself entirely in that whole Bathsheba incident because after all, he was the general. He was the one in charge. He had the power. He had the authority. He was the king. If we judge sin from a merely human perspective, then sin doesn't exist. And that's the bottom line. That if 
we understand sin. And we understand it from only our natural, inborn, human, rational perspective, then sin doesn't exist. Because there's always a reason, there's always a rationality, and there's always a way out. And it's a different thing entirely. To be confronted, to stand before holy God, to, in a sense, fast forward our lives, to think ahead in our lives to the last day of our lives, to understand that one day, one day we will stand before the judge of all. Our bodies will either have turned back to dust or at least be in the process. And God's law will be unveiled for all that it is. That's why I say thank God for Lent. Because if, if all we had was our human reason, if all we had were the excuses and the politicking of this world, then sin would not exist. There would always be a reason and a way out. But the time of Lent, it's like God slams the brakes on the car, drags us out of that car, kicking and screaming, and says, stand here for just a moment. Stand here and see where you stand in relation to God. Remember, Remember that you are only dust, and to dust you shall return. Remember that, that God has a right to have a standard and to impose this upon you or I, and that even if we think we can get out of it, well, we're not the judge of all now, are we? And Lent is this time where God slams the brakes on our lives and says, here, come and stand here for just a moment. And even if we were to review the events of 2 Samuel 7, even if we were to review the events of David and Bathsheba in all of its gory detail, 2 Samuel 11, then we would see primarily the God of all grace. That David is right when he says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Because in the sight of other humans, he could have laughed it off. He could have justified it. He was the chief judge in the land. What's the big deal? Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Have mercy on me, O God. You are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. That's how the rest of that verse ends up. Against you have I sinned, and you are the one who is the judge. You are the one who passes the verdict. So we come seeking cleansing from him. Lent is this time where we put the rest of the world on pause for a few days, for a few weeks. Some practice, you know, the 40 days of Lent, and we'll have Wednesday services at 1 o'clock and 7 o'clock. There's the reminder. 1 o'clock and 7 o'clock for the next six weeks. And we put the rest of the world on pause to say, how does God see things? That first of all, that God sees things and calls things as they are, that he doesn't say, well, it was just culturally conditioned and, and David could have gotten away with it and I understand it was ha you were having a hard day. God says, here's the standard and you need to be cleansed. You need to be washed. You need to be cleansed with hyssop, as David says, the bleach of the Old Testament. Wash me and I will be white as snow, he says. And so God says, come and listen. Come and observe once more the works and the life of your Lord Jesus Christ. 
Because even though you are only dust, and to dust you shall return, even though we are descendants of Adam, the first one formed from the dust, and each of us bear the same um, genetic death that is inborn sin, even though that is the case, we have a champion who was born from, yes, David's line. And so Ash Wednesday isn't some sort of hopeless remembrance and prostrating oneself and, um, and despairing. But you'll notice that the, the ashes are in the shape of a cross, much like the, the cross that we symbolically, you know, mark um, in the beginning of the service, at the end of the service, um, and over the, over the child when they are baptized. The shape of the cross because your Jesus Christ has joined your humanity. He's become one who is flesh and blood like you and me, a child of Adam, and yet the greater son of Adam. That even though by our actions and under God's judgment, we are dust and to dust we shall return, the one who is the greater son of Adam, the second Adam, that one is the one to whom we are conformed, to, by whom we are washed. And so Ash Wednesday and the whole season of Lent is like God saying, all right, well, let's talk about sin as it actually is, none of the wiggle room that the rest of the world wants, but let's talk about Jesus as he actually lives. That Lent begins with this, remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return, this statement that, that sin produces death, and I know that I am sinful, therefore I will die. And Lent is this journey through that valley all the way to Resurrection Sunday, where we see the second Adam, where we see the second Adam, yes, descended from David and Abraham and Adam. We see the second Adam rise victorious from the dead. And so the mark on your head and upon your heart is that of the cross of Christ. Because today is not a day of despairing. Well, it's not a day of dismissing, as though we were to dismiss sin in its entirety. Nor is it a day of despairing as if we were to say, well, we see sin as it is and I have, um, I don't know what to do about it. But Ash Wednesday and the whole season of Lent is a time of rejoicing that this Jesus Christ came for you and for me. That he didn't leave us simple um, dust and ash to fend for ourselves on the day of fire and judgment, but he joined himself to our humanity and he washed you clean. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. See the pattern. That David's repentance wasn't some simple emotional state that he got himself worked up to, but it was being confronted by the law of God and what God actually had to say. But that was just the first thing God had to say. The second and greater was this, that eventually David's own son would carry David's sin in yours and mine to cleanse you not with hyssop but with his blood, to set you free and say, Dear Christian, you've been washed, you've been cleaned, and even though you are only dust and to dust you shall return, the resurrection proves that you will be raised from the dead, body and soul, to live in heaven forever. Amen. <laughs>